This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. With the National Book Festival in Washington, D.C. this weekend, we present a special edition devoted to Latin American literature. Award-winning Mexican author Alberto Ruiz Sanchez will join us for a conversation. We'll also look at the region's new wave of writers. And a note to parents, this week's program deals with literature that sometimes has adult themes. But now, Jordan Derry is here with this week's review of news from around Latin America. A congressional committee in the United States strongly condemned an undercover arms smuggling operation meant to catch members of drug cartels in Mexico. The operation is known by its codename, Fast and Furious. This week, a government inspector general released a report that criticized the handling of the operation by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, along with the U.S. Justice Department. Republican Congressman Darrell Issa of California chaired the committee that reviewed the investigation. Operation Fast and Furious is a poster child for what you don't do with deadly weapons. You don't lose track of them. You don't allow more and more and more of them to go. Well, in fact, you're already seeing the effects of those weapons killing people in Mexico. The report revealed the sting operation actually lost track of thousands of weapons. The problem came to light when one of those weapons was found at the scene of a fatal shooting of a Border Patrol agent. One longtime leader of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms retired after the report was released, and a Justice Department official resigned. A dozen others faced job penalties related to the case. A federal judge has ruled that law enforcement officials in Arizona can now ask anyone for proof of their immigration status. The U.S. Supreme Court upheld this portion of Arizona's controversial immigration law in a ruling this summer. However, the court struck down many other portions of law at that time. Those opposed to the law say it will encourage discrimination against Latinos. Cuban officials announced that they will put a Spanish politician on trial next month for negligent homicide. The Cubans accuse him of causing the death of two Cuban dissidents this summer. All were involved in a controversial car crash. The crash claimed the life of Oswaldo Paya, one of the leaders of Cuba's democracy movement. Cuban officials say the car carrying Paya spun out of control due to excessive speed and crashed into a telephone pole. Paya's family and Cuban dissident groups say they believe Cuban state security may have been chasing the car when the Spanish driver lost control. The United Nations says Bolivia is producing less coca, the plant that's used to create cocaine. The UN report comes a week after a critical report from the United States that said the Bolivian government was not upholding international treaties concerning illegal narcotics. Bolivia's president, Evo Morales, says consumption of illegal drugs in the U.S. is the problem, not the traditional harvest and use of coca in Bolivia. Less than a week after facing criticism in that same U.S. report, Venezuela helped officials from the U.S. and Colombia capture one of Colombia's biggest drug lords. Colombian authorities called Daniel Aloco Barrera the last of the great crime bosses and characterized him as someone who led drug gangs for more than 20 years. Barrera faces criminal charges in the U.S. that would put him in jail for life if he is extradited and found guilty. For Latin Pulse, I'm Jordan Derry. Thanks, Jordan. Mexican author Alberto Ruiz Sanchez is known for his series of books on Mogador, a sensual cross-cultural exploration of Morocco. The fifth in that series is due out next year. Welcome to Latin Pulse. 
Thank you so much, Rick. It's a pleasure to be with you here. I realize your series tries to answer this next question, but if you could, in a bit of a preview for those in our listenership who have not read your material, why did Mogador become your muse? Well, I had a revelation discovering, arriving to Morocco, uh, discovering that there was a link between the Mexican culture and the North African culture, because both were an heritage of the ancient Spanish Arabic culture. And so, tell us a, a, a little bit about this exploration and and how you came to meet Mogador. Well, it was by chance. I was traveling in Morocco. We had um, an incident that changed the path of our of our travel. I was traveling with my wife, and uh, the people who gave us a lift was going to that way. So in that way, so we we discovered Mogador by chance, and really that that the popu- that little port inhabited me. It became part of whatever I was writing. When I came back to Paris there, where I was studying, I decided to write a, a short story on whatever, and it had to be placed in Mogador, because Mogador became not only the scenario, but also the metaphor of desire. It became something extre- extremely weird. was um, like if all the world could be something, not only what it was, but besides something else, like a double sense of all the things in the world. And that happened in Mogador. You talked there a bit about desire and, and metaphors. And in some ways, this entire series is very, not just sensual, but also erotic, but not always explicitly erotic. So there is a lot of metaphor in this work. What what inspired you to find these metaphors? Well, the, 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 the kind of revelation I had there is that the world is sensuous, that there is a sensuous meaning of everything we, we are living, that to breathe, to drink, to, to, to do anything you do is a metaphor of, of a erotic relation. I mean, eroticism not only as a sexual act, but as a contact with the world. Believing that a good definition of eroticism for me is everything that affirms life. In The Secret Gardens of Mogador, the third book in the series, you take eroticism to a place that is is not normally visited, and you're talking about the eroticism of pregnant women. Can you share with us a bit about this? <laughs> yes, well, all the, all the series is nourished by a research on how other people live their erotic moments. And of course, I was much more interested in things that seems weird or non-explored, because one of the vocations of a writer is to, to explore what the others didn't do. And it seemed to me that the eroticism of pregnant women was an unexplored world in literature. So I began to make an inquiry, and I expended like six years asking women how they lived that moment. And um, in the book, you don't find the research as a sociological report, but you find it in the most interesting stories I found. And now an excerpt from The Secret Gardens of Mogador. One day, 
I caught her sitting by her window, offering her skin to the sun's first rays. First her feet, then her legs, and finally the mound of her pubis, upon which she gazed as if it were a bush, a forest, a sown field. My plants are happy, she said, smiling, without looking up from the tuft of unruly down covering her belly. An emerging dark line seemed to grow delicately toward her navel. She was content and peaceful, like someone contemplating a landscape that fills the horizon. But I really began to worry the day she woke up excited and shouting, The great gardener has arrived, just as the sun was coming up. She opened the curtain enough to illuminate the edge of the bed and undressed to offer herself to the first warm ray of the morning. From the Secret Gardens of Mogador by Alberto Ruiz Sanchez. There was a woman telling me that she was so, uh, so in a feeling of such a sensuality that one morning she woke up, she perceived uh, the sun getting into the window, and she made love with the sun. She masturbated with a ray of sun getting into her bed and touching her body. So she felt, she, and she told me in detail how she undressed, how she opened her legs to the, this warm ray of sun that arrived, and how she made love with the sun. So for me, that was really something that I couldn't imagine. Or even if I imagined, it would be very poor. But her description was literal and was really something very special. I'm wondering what the reaction from women might be to these works. Well, you know, the first of, of the books was really an effort of, uh, of understanding. I really was feeling myself as a person who doesn't get what happens in the woman's world. So I made a huge effort of listening. So I didn't expect it, but when the, the first book was published, the reaction of women was amazingly in favor of the books. And it continued through all the series, so much that I really stopped the, the pace in which I was writing and publishing them to introduce what all, the, all my research on hearing the woman. So maybe as a response to all my research and all my listening, the, the audience of my books is mostly feminine. The fifth book in the series is due out next year? In the United States. In, in, United in Mexico, States, it's yes. already published. Uh, but uh, in the United States, it will appear. And it's, um, each one of the books uh, is based on an essence, on a, an, an element. Earth, water, fire, air. air. And the first one is air. And the fifth is about what in Spanish we call the quinta esencia, which means at the, at the same time the fifth essence, and quinta esencia means the essence of the essences. And for me, in each, in each cosmology in the, in the history of thought is different, but for me it was wonder, because it's wonder what, what, what really moves the whole series, the, the sense of wonder, the sense of wonder of things, on, on, on the, the capability of wonder uh, and the sense of uh, um, being amazed of things that people don't pay attention normally. And, and when you really place yourself in a situation of wonder, you could be amazed. 
So the title of the new book? The title in Spanish is Nine Times Wonder. But my translator and my publisher says that it's not a good title. So we are thinking on aesthetics of wonder or something like that. But we are accepting. We are still accepting suggestions. Well, if, if our listeners have suggestions, they can send them to you, to your blog, yes? Yes, please. Well, you can send it to my mail. It's, it's public. It's Alberto Rui um, at gmail.com. Well, hopefully you'll you'll get some mail from our our listeners do do we can we look for a publisher to have this unknown translated title um wh- which publisher will be will it will be white pine press the books are not bestsellers but they continue to be published every year everywhere they appear so i think that in part is 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 because people like you give a place to to them and some people hear about them and look for them, and person through person, ear through mouth, the, the, the books find their way. Thank you so much, Rick. Thank you, author Alberto Ruiz Sanchez, today on Latin Pulse. I want to finish school. And then go to college. To be able to graduate. And have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. To give us more perspective on Latin American literature and some writers we should be reading... Dr. Nuria Villanova of American University joins us now. Welcome to Latin Pulse. Hello, and thank you for having me here with you today. Dr. Villanova is the author of two books, The Impact of Social Change Upon Peruvian Literature and Border Texts, Writing Fiction from Northern Mexico. What do your books tell us about the importance of social change in literature? Um... I think they both uh, tell us a lot, and although they both are based on different places physically, they have the kind of same paradigm that underlines them. I traveled to Peru previously, and I was very interested in seeing how much some of the new writers that I came across when I was there had been impacted by what we call social change, and that means the phenomenon of migration from the countryside to the city of Lima, which is very huge and really impacting everything culturally, socially, politically, and so on. So if you have, you know, the writers that were writing in the 50s and the 60s, and they provided a more kind of centralized view from urban areas. They, most of them were male, you know, Vargas Llosa, Bryce Chenique, Ribeiro even. And, um, and they had a similar, of course it was expressed in different ways, but a similar outlook. And those new writers were really the product of a different way of, you know, a different society altogether. So um, that was the first book. And then the second one, I moved myself to Mexico. I lived in Mexico for six years. And uh, I was very interested. I was finding that kind of paradigm there, and I couldn't. And then I couldn't 
see the same, you know, it's very interesting because in Peru, the state has had such a weak role in controlling what was going on at the cultural level, at the social level even. And you have all these um, um, civil society moving along and organizing itself. And there's been a lot of work written about this, about, you know, what is the emergence of these uh, organizations at the periphery of Lima and so on. In Mexico, of course, the control that the state had over everything, you could tell that also was over the production of literature. There were no other deaths of women in May, with the exception of those who died of natural causes, that is, of illness or old age or in childbirth. But the end of the month marked the appearance of the church desecrator. One day, a stranger came into the church of San Rafael on Calle Patriotas Mexicanos in the center of Santa Teresa during the early service. The church was almost empty. There were just a few of the faithful clustered together in the front pews and the priest was in the confessional. The church smelled of incense and cheap cleaning products. The stranger sat in one of the last pews and got right down on his knees, his head buried in his hands as if it ached or he felt ill. Some of the elderly parishioners turned to look at him and whispered among themselves. One little old lady came out of the confessional and stood motionless, staring at the stranger as a young woman with Indian features went in to confess. When the priest had absolved the Indian woman of her sins, the service would start, But the little old lady who had come out of the confessional just stood there, staring at the stranger, although sometimes she shifted her weight from one foot to the other, doing a kind of dance step. She knew immediately that something was wrong with the man, and she intended to go and warn the other old ladies. From 2666 by Roberto Bolaño. Bolaño is somebody who was um, discovered, say, or who was who was really became really well known towards, as it happened sometimes, towards the end of his life. His life ended when he was quite young. He had just turned fifty, so I mean, he was young as a writer and as a person, of course. And he lived quite in poverty, I would say, or very, you know, not with much means. He, I think he provided that kind of um, bridge between a modern literature and a postmodern one, you see. And uh, it's not that it's only him doing that, but it does happen that he became translated and he, he became known. The writers, recent writers, when I say recent, I mean that generation that was born in late 50s, 60s, uh, up to now, they have another outlook in general. So life cannot be, you know, seen in the way that probably Vargas Llosa or García Márquez and other writers in that moment. And that's the older generation. Yes, that's the older generation. Yes. What we have here is it's very interesting because what happens is that, in a way, the older generation was the first generation to be well-known internationally. In the general public got to know Latin American literature. Well, Latin American literature became something more exotic, you know, this idea about the magical realism they provided that kind of other life that was different from what we had in Western countries or 
so on, you see. And that's precisely, I mean, Latin American literature has a very rich and long tradition from colonial times. Let me come back to Bologno, because I'm not sure we went deeply enough no, in what we, did we discussed yeah, we just... about him. And some people might approach him as a crime novelist, because some of his work is in in that vein. And... Also, he has some influences from his time in Central America and in Mexico. He comes from a country that under, has undergone one of the, you know, cruelest and most um, brutal dictatorships in, in Latin America. That would be Chile. Uh, yes, Chile and uh, with Pinochet, of course. And he's very critical. He, of course, opposes comple- completely the regime. And then he uses something which in the context of Latin America is quite new and uh, is the the criminal novel. That doesn't, I mean, it does exist, but not to ex- the extent that, of course, not the extent that it could exist in the States or England, you see. Or well, Britain. I think about Paco Ignacio Taibo, the right. younger That's in Mexico right. and his noir novels. Yes, yes, you're right. But I think what happens is that uh, Taibo probably doesn't, I mean, it's more like the plot, the argument, what goes on, the characters, whereas what happens with Bolaño is that he breaks that completely. So he uses part of the crime novel elements like the intrigue and, you know, the the action, really, but then he breaks it. I mean, his narrative is broken, it's completely fragmented, and it's difficult to just follow it in the traditional way when you want to make it, you know, more linear. That day, in the middle of the Midwestern Plains, Mikondo was born. Its greatest inspiration is another book, Stories with a Walkman, an anthology of new Chilean writers which burst in front of readers with the force of a punk concert. This book, which has now sold over 10,000 copies in Chilean territory alone, was compiled by us two, starting with works by young people who attended the literary workshops offered by Contact Zone, a juvenile literary supplement that is published every Friday in the newspaper El Mercurio in Santiago. As the advertising for the fourth edition states, the Walkman method is a new literary generation that is post-everything, post-modern, post-yuppie, post-communism, post-baby boom, post-ozone layer. There is no magic realism here, only virtual realism. From Introduction to Mekondo Country by Alberto Fuguet and Sergio Gomez. Alberto Fuguet, who is a writer from Chile, and he was born, I think, in the early 60s. He's then quite young. He, uh, along with other Latin American writers from from Bolivia, Edmundo Paz Soldan, and uh, he, he's part of that uh, anthology, he, they come out with this anthology edited by him, by Alberto Fuguet. Um, the name of it is Mac. Ondo, but instead of Macondo, which is M-A-C-O-N-D-O, Macondo, and this is the magical kind of uh, location of 100 Years of Solitude by García Márquez, they write it down, Macondo, like McDonald's, M-C, small c, and then Ondo. So that's just the title of the anthology says all. To me, they take Macondo because the Macondo 
García Márquez Macondo um, is that it uh, uh, kind of captures that idea of this magical, realistic um, novel, you know, and literature. And to them, because Macondo is so important in the history of Latin American literature, being, you know, the main character of 100 Years of Solitude, what they do is to make mockery of that word. But we shouldn't forget that this so-called magical realism is a way to, un un you know, to uncover, to unmask a very painful um, social issues related to a turbulent society, very uneven, very um, oppressed in many ways, violent and, you know, marginalized and not very well understood most of the time. So maybe in a time of, you know, of turbulence, the only way to put things, you know, uh, you know to express yourself is through literature because that kind the metaphors the fiction can un can uncovers and unmask that you see what I mean. Thank you, Dr. Nuria Villanova of American University, joining us today on Latin Pulse. And now, Latin American perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter American Dialogue. Venezuela was formally incorporated into the Mercosur Trade Group on July 31st. But only three members, Brazil, Uruguay, and Argentina, were in Brasilia to celebrate. The fourth, Paraguay, which had long blocked Venezuela's admission, had been suspended a month earlier for its hurried impeachment and ouster of then-President Lugo. Just why the Brazil government was so eager to bring Venezuela into Mercosur remains a mystery, however. Argentina's enthusiasm is easy to understand. Venezuela is one of the few sources of foreign investment it has left. For its part, Uruguay gave in to the pressure of its two big neighbors, Argentina and Brazil. But Brazil could say no to both Venezuela and Argentina, and it had ample justification for deferring a decision. There still are unanswered questions about the legal basis, both for Paraguay's quick suspension and Venezuela's rapid incorporation into the trade group. Whether a Chavez-ruled Venezuela meets Mercosur's democratic conditions was not even considered. Brazilian officials have tried to make their case on economic grounds, arguing that oil-rich Venezuela adds a great deal of heft and future potential to the Mercosur economies. And Brazil has seen its exports to Venezuela rise sharply in the past decade. Today, it runs a huge trade surplus with a country that imports almost everything but oil. Brazilian investments in Venezuela have made handsome profits as well. Venezuela's vast petroleum reserves under any government should be an enormous asset well into the future. But Brazil will also pay a high price for bringing Venezuela into Mercosur. Mercosur has been troubled for many years. Its members regularly violate the group's rules. Protectionism among the partners has long been a problem and has gotten much worse in recent years. Disputes among the countries have multiplied and deepened. Venezuela is likely to aggravate all these problems. Mercosur will now be home to Venezuela and Argentina, widely considered 
two of Latin America's most bizarrely managed and highest risk economies. What remains of its international stature has been further damaged. A trade arrangement with the European Union, which Mercosur has been negotiating off and on for 10 years, is now further away than ever. Brazil may just have recognized the deteriorated state of Mercosur and given up trying to make it into a serious foundation for economic cooperation. Brazil may just see Mercosur as a mechanism for keeping its most disruptive neighbors pacified. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American Perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. Thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse this week. For our entire team, announcer Victor Kilo and writers Colin Campbell, Jordan Derry, and Kurt Devine, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchen nosotros. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012. Las Rocas Productions.